0: Welcome to this APTA podcast. Welcome to PTJ author interviews. PTJ editor-in-chief Alan Jetty talks with authors about the most interesting and sometimes surprising aspects of their work. And now, Dr. Jetty.
1: Hello. I want to welcome listeners to this latest PTJ podcast. This is Alan Jetty, editor-in-chief of PTJ. And today I'm very pleased to have as my guest, Professor Jep Van Dien. He's with the Department of Movement Sciences in the Amsterdam Movement Sciences Department at Vrie University in Amsterdam. Welcome Professor Van Dien. Thank you. Great to have you here. We're gonna talk about an article that he and his colleagues published in PTJ. It's called Effects of Perturbation-Based Treadmill Training on Balanced Performance daily life gait and falls in older adults. I'll give a little synopsis and then we can talk about it. In this study, there were 70 community-dwelling older adults who were at risk of falling, and they were randomized into receiving a four-week dual-task treadmill training protocol, either with or without treadmill perturbations. The investigators assessed the balance in gait performance self-efficacy daily life trunk accelerometry at baseline post-intervention and six months post-intervention and they looked at follow-up on falls as well the investigators found that both groups improved in their gait and balance performance as well as self-efficacy however the group with perturbations showed a significantly larger decrease in concerns over falling and an increase in their physical performance as compared to the controls. However, the training effects did not translate into significant improvements in daily life gait or physical activity. Nonetheless, the number of uh, falls and the percentage of fallers did decrease significantly more in the group with perturbations. Is that a fair summary, Professor? Absolutely. Okay. Well, my first question is I'm interested in why you hypothesize that dual task training uh, that combined uh, perturbations or not would show a differential effect.
0: The main reason for expecting differential effects there are that we think the exposure, well, the exposure to perturbation for first of all presents a very specific training. Uh, that we think is crucial to prevent falls uh, in real life because in the end, balanced recovery responses are not, let's say, uh, trained by just walking on a treadmill. The other thing I think that is important, we expected uh, bigger effects on balanced confidence uh, or self-efficacy, which in turn might lead to an increased physical activity in daily life, which in itself might also have training effects, of course. We did not find an increase in physical activity. We did find this bigger increase in self-confidence. So we think this might be a, a big factor still.
1: Theoretically, what led you to think that these changes would translate into daily life behavior?
0: Again, I think the self-confidence and, and the specificity of the training are the key factors there. So exposure to balance perturbations with the experience of successful recovery might be very important for improved self-efficacy the other thing like i said we know from motor control training that training needs to be quite specific to allow motor learning and while gait quality is an important outcome in the end, it's different from um, the, re- the the quality of balance recovery responses. So we think we need, well, basically to train both, but to prevent falls in the end, to also train the uh, the specific balance recovery responses.
1: I, I don't believe you you reported this in your article, but uh, I know you didn't have an overall effect on um, daily life, gait, and physical activity, but. You did see an improvement in confidence and in self-efficacy, as you've mentioned. Did you did you model the link between those who improved in self-confidence and self-efficacy with their daily life uh, behavior?
0: No, we didn't. Also, I, I doubt that the group is large enough actually to do these kind of analyses.
1: Do you think the sample size is a problem?
0: Uh, yes, yeah, for for this kind of let's say regression-based analysis. Yeah,
1: it would be really interesting because it would really test your hypothesis of what would be driving the change in uh, daily behavior.
0: Absolutely, yeah. It's actually something we we're, we will do in a project that we've just started, right. uh, which is on, on Parkinson's patients, so it's on a specific population, but it's a much larger uh, sample, so that's, we, we actually will try to, to do these types of sort of mediation analysis in, in that group.
1: Yeah, I think that would be very informative from a theoretical perspective. I, I know you were faced with a a huge challenge. You wanted people who were at risk of falling, because those are the ones where you're going to see the change if a change is going to occur. However, you had to you you chose to exclude a lot of subjects who, at least from my thinking, were at considerable risk of falling those who had neurologic, cardiovascular, or pulmonary morbidity, and those with certain kinds of orthopedic complications as well within the past six months. Can you talk a little bit about how you dealt with that tension between getting the population at risk and having to exclude people who, at least on the face of it, would seem to be at considerable high risk for, for exactly what it is you're trying to study?
0: Yeah, Um, maybe first explain the reason why we excluded these people. Obviously, this was because of risks that could be involved in in this type of training. Um, Intensity of the exercises with the perturbations uh, could be too high in in those at-risk populations. So it was a a safety measure. we felt this was necessary because we conducted the trial in first-line physiotherapy clinics, or one first-line physiotherapy clinic, I should say. And in the Netherlands, there's so there's a clear differentiation between, let's say, the, the medical supervision within that context compared to where, where we would apply this in a medical setting. So there was no... Um, not sufficient, let's say, safety measures in place to, to uh, in, include these higher risk groups. Now, obviously they are would be on average more at risk of falling. So might even benefit more from this type of training, but I think we would need to do, do it in a different setting or do it uh, after more safety testing really.
1: Okay, I, I can understand that. Now, I, I don't. I'm not real familiar with the kind of protocol you use, but you did mention in your article that you people were in a harness, which strikes me as uh, fairly safe. Is that not the case? Is, is what's what's the safety? Fairly, issue?
0: fairly safe, but still, the, the task is cons- experienced as relatively stressful by participants. Uh, it is kind of scary. Even though you can't really fall, uh, having the feeling that you might fall is a, a strong stressor. So that was one of the reasons for excluding people with cardiovascular problems, for example.
1: It's, it's, it's a huge challenge that I'm sure you're very familiar with in your work, because it, the, the people who could really benefit many times are the people that you you weren't able to uh, to enroll.
0: Yeah, and then when recruiting people, actually, I think this type of bias is further increased by self-selection because um, looking at the population that we included, I would still consider them to be relatively fit compared maybe to the average uh, peer.
1: Yeah, it's a classic problem with all these kinds of trials. I've seen it year after year that we, we end up recruiting a very self-selected group of people with the kinds of trials that we perform, but for understandable reasons. I mean, you've explained why you had to do it. Uh, let me talk about another finding that I thought was interesting. When you looked at interactions, you reported no significant interactions for balanced performance. And for that, you used the Mini-Best test. General self-efficacy, as well as confidence in walking, and as you note in your article, implying that improvements were not significantly different between groups in those parameters, can you talk about that finding a little bit?
0: Um, yeah. Well, first of all, we were expecting to find differences, especially in the reactive uh, part of the Mini Best uh, test. We actually included that as a let's say clinical balance test because because of it, it has this reactive component in it. Um, I, I guess it's. It may be down to the sensitivity of these tests, which of course are relatively crude, and I also think we tend to see some ceiling effects in these tests. So that's also why I was saying this: this population may still be relatively fit compared to their average, uh, to, to the age group. Uh,
1: yeah, you know, um, I'm very interested in, in this translation of the kinds of benefits you achieved into to daily life and in, in work that i've done over the years i have found that uh, fear of falling is a is a very strong predictor of people's willingness or unwillingness to translate improvements into daily life have you considered in your future work in doing some type of um, cognitive or behavioral intervention to go after those issues in addition to the the ones that you have focused on with the perturbation and the the dual task treadmill training,
0: no, not explicitly. So, no, no. We, we like I said, we did expect actually that the treadmill training would have this effect on, on self efficacy and confidence. I've never considered doing specific interventions to address self efficacy, but it, yeah, it, it, I do think it makes sense because I think it's it it may in a lot of people limit the level their levels of physical activity in daily life it may also actually uh, interfere with um, balance responses there's some interesting work out of the uk uh, recently where they showed that the the uh, the the lack of uh, self-efficacy may explain uh let's say worse balance responses in in some people Yeah, and it's not so much the fear of falling but it's the, the fear of not being able to yeah not be, being able to do anything about it let's put it that way yeah that seems to be the, the factor there from from that, those studies
1: back in the 90s we teamed up with a cognitive psychologist who helped us Go after some of those psychological issues and cognitive issues, and we found it effective in the trials we were doing back then with elderly. Uh, finally, I I know you had the misfortune of uh, conducting your stu- uh, study well, as during the uh, the pandemic, the COVID pandemic. Could you talk a little bit about uh, uh, for listeners how that affected your work and and how you dealt with that?
0: I had actually had to ask the the PhD student how this uh, worked because I couldn't fully uh, recall. Um, We actually finished the the last uh, follow-up measurement. Well, not the follow not the follow-up because that lasted for half a year, but that was diaries. But the last post-measurement was done just before the first lockdown uh, in the Netherlands. So we were very fortunate to to get all of the data in before the lockdown. And then, of course, the fall diaries could be continued throughout uh, the lockdown. Now, in terms of of, um, those follow-up measurements, we were worried that... Uh, levels of activity might have decreased and people were maybe less outdoors and, and that could have affected the falls. Now, of course, that would have applied to both groups because the both groups were run simultaneously. Um, so it should not have an effect, let's say, on the difference in outcomes between groups. It may account for some of the overall decrease in falls that we uh, observed.
1: Yeah, it, it could have diminished the impact of your intervention in both groups,
0: yeah. Although in terms of, of fall rate and fall fall uh, number of falls, it could also have worked out the other way. You could also hypothesize that people were less active and therefore fell less often.
1: Yeah, which you know, from your perspective, you want a certain percentage of people to fall, right? Otherwise, <laughs> you're not going to have any chance of that. You know. But especially,
0: uh, especially at the baseline measurements,
1: yes. Yeah. yeah. Well, Professor Venzian, thank you for taking the time uh, to talk about your study and for publishing it at PTJ. I enjoyed reading about it, and I really enjoyed talking with you.
0: Thank you. It was a pleasure. You can find more APTA podcasts like this one on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify, or by visiting apta.org slash podcasts.